Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Michelle C. Johnson. Michelle is an author, yoga teacher, social justice activist, intuitive healer, and dismantling racism trainer. She approaches her life and work from a place of empowerment, embodiment, and integration. As a dismantling racism trainer, she has worked with large corporations, nonprofits, and community groups, including the ACLU, WA, Duke University, Google, This American Life, Eno River Unitarian Universalist Church, Lululemon, and many others. Michelle published Skill in Action, Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World in 2017. She teaches workshops in yoga studios and community spaces nationwide. Michelle's new book, Finding Refuge, Heart Work for Healing Collective Grief, published by Shambhala Publications, comes out on 13th of July, 2021. She was a TEDx speaker at Wake Forest University in 2019 and has been interviewed on several podcasts in which she explores the premise and foundation of skill in action, along with creating ritual in justice spaces, our divine connection with nature and spirit, and how we as a culture can heal. Recently, she created her own podcast, Finding Refuge, which explores collective grief and liberation and serves as a reminder about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times and of the resilience and joy that comes from allowing ourselves to find refuge. Whether in an anti-oppression training, yoga space, individual or group intuitive healing session, the heart, healing and wholeness are at the center of how Michelle approaches all of her work in the world. So with that, hello, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me here, Jacob. It's nice to be here. So as I was mentioning just before we started recording, I recently this morning uh, finished reading your new book, which hasn't yet hit the shelves, but which I was fortunate enough to uh, get an advanced copy of in preparation for this interview and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, both as an opportunity to get a glimpse into some of your own history, um, but also, of course, the important work that you do. And so, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to talking about some of the themes, particularly around grief that you explore in the book. Um, But before we get started, I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of your own narrative and what led you to the work that you do um, in this uh, in this work in resolving grief and social justice. Yeah, thank you. Um, so it's a long story, but I'll I'll offer some some highlights. Mm-hmm. So skill in action is radicalizing your yoga practice to create a just world came out in 2018, and prior to that, I was um, teaching yoga. I was a social worker, an elected official, an activist, and a dismantling racism trainer, and. I wrote Skill in Action um, because I noticed how exclusive the industry of wellness was and often felt confused about a practice that is focused on liberation and conditions that actually are are in the way of allowing us to be free within the context of capitalism and how it intersects with the industry of wellness. So Skill in Action came from that that place. Um, Prior to writing the book, skill in action, I was leading workshops about the yoga for social change, yoga of social change, and working with spiritual activists um, to center social justice in spiritual spaces, which is 
part of the, the work that I continue to do today. And that has transitioned into the book and teacher trainings and traveling prior to COVID around the country um, and, and actually around the world to teach about um, how we can center justice and infuse it in our teaching. And, you know, in thinking about finding refuge in collective grief, it feels very connected to skill in action because, as you know, you just finished reading it, it um, is my own story of, of grief and loss. And then all of the stories I share in the book are scaled to the collective. And in skill in action, I'm looking at systemic racism, systemic oppression, I do the same in finding refuge. And at a certain point, I realized so much of what I was doing in yoga spaces in my social work practice, even as an elected official and in dismantling racism trainings was I was stewarding grief. I was actually making a space for people to talk about things that we've been conditioned um, to not talk about. Right. And um, to not be honest about and to not be in this practice of being with what is. And once that clicked for me, like, oh, you're sitting with people, you're talking about where they're from, you're talking about history. You're, you're naming um, the ways in which you would like us to stop repeating these traumatic patterns of oppression. That is where finding refuge came from, that, that connection between the work I'd done for many years, the anti-oppression work I'd done for many years, and this recognition that so much of what people were feeling in, in my spaces was grief and, and unresolved trauma and unattended grief and heartbreak. And so Finding Refuge came from that space. Um, the other space it came from, though, was, you know, I don't remember where I was, but I was um, somewhere two and a half years ago when the idea that we would need a space to grieve or a way to grieve came to me. And I'm sure it came from my ancestors. That's how I think about it, because I have gotten messages from them before. And I didn't really understand why at the time. And, you know, I mean, Finding Refuge is coming out in the, the wake of, of COVID-19 and um, we experienced a lot of political unrest last year and so many things were illuminated or over the last year and a half. And so um, it just, you know, feels so synchronous that it's coming out now um, and that it's an offering, a tool that we can use to respond to the, the like horrors we just endured <laughs> over the last year and a half and the unthinkable, like no one expected a, a pandemic. And so, when I think about my work in the world, I think um, part of it is, is um, you know, I'm deeply intuitive. And I think this message to create a space for people to grieve from my ancestors was from their knowing that we would need this space and redefining my work as you know, a, a person who can help hold grief and steward grief and connect processing grief with us um, finding a space of liberation. I feel like that is so relevant and resonant and um, it feels embodied in skill and action as well. So the work I've been doing for a long time. So that's a little bit about my, my journey and, and my work. That's beautiful. Thank you, Michelle. Before I ask this next question, I want to read a quote from, it's actually from the website that's sort of um, giving a little teaser or taster of the book, um, but it's a beautiful quote. So I wanted to start with it. We are holding grief in our bodies and bones, often in isolation, and yet our grief isn't isolated, it is pervasive. To respond to the grief that we experience as a collective, we need to be present to what is breaking our hearts. We need a spiritual practice to hold and allow us to feel grounded as we begin to recognize our brokenheartedness. 
when we turn toward our brokenheartedness, we can begin to acknowledge what we are grieving and we can create space to grieve. As we grieve, we also tap into our own capacity to heal. We connect with our resilience and begin to piece back together the parts of ourselves that feel shattered. We come back into wholeness. You know, when I read this quote, which is so beautiful, uh, what really struck me um, also kind of personally as well is this theme of brokenheartedness. And I, I love that you center it in this way as a, as a lens onto the experience of grief, because it seems like many people kind of associate the notion of brokenhearted with brokenheartedness with perhaps, you know, being brokenhearted by a lover or a friend or a family member. Um, and it seems like, you know, especially given the work that you do in terms of collective trauma and uh, uh, white supremacy and racism, that the brokenheartedness um, can sometimes not be seen as such. And it seems like what you're suggesting is that there's a kind of strong utility in actually acknowledging the brokenheartedness of that as a way to begin the process of healing. So I was just wondering if you could speak a little to that experience of brokenheartedness and, and how we notice the brokenheartedness if perhaps we haven't uh, considered looking at it that way before. Yeah, I love this this question because language is really powerful and we have different ways of defining things, right? And in my experience, you're right, when people think about brokenheartedness or when I've heard people talk about it, often it is connected with the loss of a relationship or a change in a relationship or transition. Um, and the kind of brokenheartedness that I have written about in Finding Refuge is, is brokenheartedness that I actually think many of us feel, we're just not aware of it. Um, and that's why I center presence and finding refuge as well. Like what is present in the heart? And when we turn towards the heart and notice the tenderness there, what happens, right? But when we turn away from it, I feel like it's will cause more suffering. Um, and that's also part of finding refuge as well, what's written about there. And, you know, I feel like I probably have always had a um, broadened understanding of brokenheartedness and, and, Part of that is from um, how I came into the world. Part of it is about my identities and how I move through the world now. And as a child, I was uh, definitely aware of um, suffering and misalignment and um, how, how people would say they valued one thing and then they would do something that was counter to, to what they, they shared about what they valued. And um, obviously, I, as a child, I saw lots of um, just in the world, I was awake. So I feel like I saw violence. I saw disconnection. I saw separation, um, intentional separation. And while I didn't have the word oppression as a child, I didn't know the word oppression when I was a child. I certainly understood that that there was a difference in the way we were moving through the world based on our identities. Um, and so I think I've always had this idea that. Um, something's happening to the heart as a result of our deep disconnection from one another and systems that are in place to disconnect us. And, you know, the ways in which we are in denial and encouraged to be in denial about what is happening culturally and politically. Again, I don't think, I didn't have these words when I was six years old, but I remember being a very serious child and, and being very curious about why we were doing certain things. Um, and, 
you know, even as a child, my mother told me that I would see people who I perceived as, as lonely. They weren't lonely. I didn't know them. And I would always want to bring them home. And I think I wanted to know their story and I wanted to make sure they were okay. Mm. Um, so I was that kind of child, that kind of being who was like, are you okay? Are we okay? Because I knew we weren't. And so I think what I invite people into and finding refuge is yes, the brokenheartedness that may be very specific to my own individual experience, but also the brokenheartedness that we will become aware of if we actually open our eyes and sense and see all that is going on around us related to separation and systems and how we're harming one another and how we're not um, creating conditions for everyone to thrive. So that's how I think about brokenheartedness. And the the other thing I want to name about this is um, what you read is I'm not, I'm not inviting people to be in their broken heartedness and to become stagnant. I'm inviting people to be with the broken heartedness so they can heal because I don't believe we can heal unless we actually acknowledge what is and honor what has been and um, consider where we want to go and how we want to be. But we can't like bypass the, the grief to get to some different place of, of liberation. We actually have to understand the causes of grief the causes of suffering and to respond to those um, and, and even the ways in which we're, we're perpetuating suffering. Um, and when I wrote um, the first chapter, which is about my mother, when I started to think about the heart and presence in a, it was in a different way. I've been thinking about the heart for sure. Prior to my mother's illness, my mother was quite ill and I was having this experience of watching her. Um, we thought she was going to transition at that time. She was very close to it. She's still here now, but it looked like she wasn't going to be here anymore. And so I was sitting there um, witnessing that in the context of a healthcare system, but that was not designed to take care of her um, and feeling a, a, I think, more intense level of brokenheartedness, of course, because I was responding to what was going on with her, but also watching like, in the healthcare system, just how dissociated people can be and people are and how many needs are not met. Um, So I think I'm able to hold my own individual experience and again, look at, okay, how is it connected to what's happening in the collective? Um, And that um, experience with my mother in that, in the healthcare system, I just feel like created some, some urgency (laughs) for me around um, wanting to invite people into the heart space. I was touched by something that you had said um, during your mother's kind of ordeal where you were engaging with a doctor and you said, this is a human being. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She has, you know, it it, it was like you were pointing to the fact that, you know, there is an actual living, breathing person with feelings here in the context of a circumstance where everything is really treated in a very mechanical way you know, there's a, there's this kind of sense of the human body as a machine and there's really no, um, trauma sensitivity Mm -hmm. or trauma informed kind of approach that's embedded in the status quo of the healthcare system. And, um, hopefully it seems like things are shifting. Do you, do you see things as, as shifting in terms of kind of that, um, the healthcare context, do you think that we're making positive steps forward? I mean, this is such an interesting question at this time because um, my mother was sick in 2019 and the beginning of 2020. And she just, as far as we know, I don't know that my mother had COVID, but um, she certainly could have 
based on some of her symptoms, but it was before we under, we knew COVID was here. Mm. And so I think it's interesting to look at this yeah. question because I'm, I'm very cognizant to like um, the trauma that healthcare workers must be moving through right now after the last year and a half. And so I'm, I'm wondering, right, did this moment illuminate things? I mean, it, it, I think it did from the outside, right? We saw hospitals that didn't have enough resources. We saw healthcare facilities having to make choices about who was going to live and who was going to die, um, which I think has happened for a long time, but there was a consciousness that's raised about this over the last year and a half at least in, in you know the media and conversations that I've had in spiritual communities with people because we were all like what is happening and so I I don't know that will I don't know that I will actually um, know the impact of this and whether or not the healthcare system is shifting for a while because I think yeah. right now we're recover we're trying to recover right um, yeah and my hope is in those moments, and there were a few moments when I was like, yes, this is a human being. The same thing happened when my grandmother transitioned. I was like, she's a person, right? Treat her as if she's dying, treat her as a person. You know, I, I hope in those moments, there was like a little consciousness raised for that person that I was speaking to because it was an interruption. It was like, you actually don't get to do like these things that um, you often do where you dehumanize people or you don't notice, right? Or you're treating someone like a subject instead of a person. Um, and so I, I hope that may have shifted something. And I know I'm not the only person who does that, right? Those moments elicited this, like, stop and pay attention to what you're doing to this other person. You're in relationship with this person. I imagine other people have that same experience where they're calling for their beloveds to be humanized. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's, it's interesting because the, uh, my my cousin is a, a nurse and I was recently talking to her when I was visiting home and she was talking about how how many people had quit, like they'd lost so many nurses and staff. And I hadn't really heard this story, right? That not only at the time of, um, you know, just increased stress on a system, but actually also not only people actually leaving because they were themselves sick, but people leaving because the taxation on the system itself was so intense that their that the 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 push on their humanity and the stress on their own you know selves as human beings was was suddenly pushed to the center. So it's interesting that um, what I kind of hear you saying is partly this by 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 the system kind of being pushed to the breaking point, maybe it will be confronted with a kind of vision of the human as mm -hmm. it were, or like um, an, abil an ability to actually humanize those who are part of the healthcare system who have also been treated as machines. I mean, even yes. those who are cogs in it are in some sense victims mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, and I didn't know that either that, you know, but it makes sense. Like people are leaving. I mean, just thinking about <laughs> the, the like horrors that people have experienced over the last year in health, year and a half working in the healthcare system. I feel like, of course, people are leaving, right? And burnt out and don't know what just happened to them and do not yeah. have the resources to respond to what just happened because they don't even maybe have words for that kind of trauma, um, the level of that, right? And and I'm not surprised that's happening. And it does, it's like suggests we need to do something different. But yes, maybe it will illuminate something. I always feel like though, you know, how much do we have to lose before we realize what we're doing? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I really appreciated, I was listening to um, the last episode of your podcast where um, your friend Tristan interviews you um, and uh, and you were discussing how what you're concerned about now uh, or one of the things you're concerned about is is essentially the bypassing of what just happened. Right. It's all Mm -hmm. over. Um, we can take off our masks. So let's just go. And, and there's a sort of thrill in that. I mean, I'm, I live in actually right now in Provincetown, Massachusetts, which is very much a kind of celebratory place, but just generally, and people are here just like, woohoo, mm-hmm. I can't believe it's over. Like let's party. But, and there is something that feels good about relaxing, yeah. but also it, but also we have to understand that something did actually just happen that was super traumatic from your perspective, what might happen if we don't, um, collectively engage with what has happened in a really substantial way. And, and, and then beyond that question, then what can we do? Like, what do you think are some of the tools or set of, um, I don't know, uh, cultural exchanges that we can do to actually heal that trauma that we just went through. I talk about this a lot in my anti-racism work or anti-oppression work where the, like our human condition, right? We've been conditioned to deny and forget and pretend. Um, and, and, um, part of spiritual practice says be with the discomfort and be with what is, but many of us are not conditioned to, to be with what is, as I mentioned earlier. And so it's like building the capacity to be with discomfort is part of what I think we can do to acknowledge um, the like intense level of discomfort many of us have, have felt over the last year and a half because of all the uncertainty, right? And never having experienced something like this before and the nervous system not actually being designed to respond to a sustained state of crisis that we've been in. I mean, we've been in crisis for a long time, but I had never experienced a pandemic, right? Or like we can't talk to each other and we can't be in space together. That is all new for my psyche and my body and my nervous system and my, my brain. Right. And we've had to reconfigure who we are. And so I think we can, we can pretend and we can act like, you know, we didn't just go through that thing. And I think, um, of course, I don't know what will happen that will try to teach us the lesson that we need to know, but I do trust that something will happen if we don't actually acknowledge what has happened. Right. I think something, I don't, I'm not predicting a pandemic to be clear. I'm not spirit. I'm not God, but I am saying that COVID did um, shine a light on many things that need to change. And if we don't actually take this opportunity to um, really be with what it highlighted for us, then I think we're going to continue to do the same things. I think something else will will show up that will um, remind us to look at, you know, the patterns that we're engaged in that are not about our liberation. And so there's that. And I, I also think mm. the grief doesn't go anywhere. You know, one of my teachers talks about when we don't process grief, it just gets stuck in the toes. And the reason he says this is like, it gets stuck in the toes and then it's grief, compounds grief, compounds grief. And then you're just full of it. Right. And, and then you can't move. It's that heavy. And so I think people can pretend now, but I don't think that heaviness is going to go anywhere. I think it's going to show up in some other way. We know this in the body when we are injured, if we don't pay attention to the injury, the body will compensate until it breaks down. Like most people have had this experience of like, 
not honoring what's going on in the body or honoring what's going on emotionally. And then some, like you can only compensate for so long until the system completely shuts down. So I think something will, will like, um, do that, right? It'll, again, I don't know what it will be, but I think we can pretend for only so long. It's, it's, I just think there's, that's how things work, right? Like, I think that's what I believe about how things work. And so what I think we can do is I think we can slow down. Um, you know, part of um, what was illuminated because of by COVID-19, I think is like these systems that want us to be distracted and want us to speed up. And as I said, want us to pretend and deny. And so we know from spiritual practice that it invites us to slow down. It invites us to breathe into what's actually present for us. Um, and often, and I, I wrote about this in Finding Refuge as well, you know, when in the introduction, when I was in a deep, um, brokenhearted place and in pieces, like felt like I was in pieces, my spiritual practice wouldn't let me avoid what I was feeling. It allowed me to lean into it. And so whatever that is for people, I'm in, I think being mindful and slowing down and saying, how am I? And how are the people that I love, right? And um, asking people how they feel about what just happened. And I know people don't want to talk about it. But again, it's like when we don't attend to what needs attention, it doesn't go away. It just shows up in some other way. And often it's more intense later. And so I'd invite us to, to celebrate, yes. You know, I'm, I'm like celebrating the fact that I'm alive, that my mother is alive, which is a miracle, right? I'm going to celebrate these things and that she's well and that the people I love are well. And I'm going to honor that millions of people have died from COVID. I'm going to hold both. And that's what I feel like our yeah. practice invites us to do. Yeah. As you, of course, know, there is this kind of reflection um, on spiritual bypassing and, and the ways in which sometimes spiritual practice can be a, a balm and a pacifier and also a kind of um, disassociative device, right? Um, and and so I'm just curious what what spiritual practice has meant to you or the kinds of spiritual practices that really bring you back home to A, your body, and then B, the collective body that that body is a part of, you know, what, how, how have you been able to lean into this type of spiritual practice versus the, the one that would kind of bypass and evade and sort of seek the transcendent while, you know, neglecting the mm -hmm. world? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have some specific practices that I'll talk about and I think, um, what spiritual practice means to me is, what it's called me into is to doing what I just did, which is said, I'm going to celebrate and I'm going to also, I'm going to um, honor what has happened. Right. And where there's pain. Mm -hmm. And so it's invited me to hold multiple truths, which I talk about a lot. It is, it also invites me to lean into what is happening in this realm. Right. So the, the relative truth of what is, while I understand that, um, I am spirit. I have that in, inside of me. I'm bigger than this body, but I'm in a body. <laughs> I always say this, like I'm in a body on the planet right now, interacting with other bodies. And I know that um, the things that are happening right now don't define like the whole of who I am. And I think that is true for other people. So spiritual practice 
I feel like always has always invited me into being with the relative truth while it's reminded me I'm spirit. And that orientation is it may be different for other folks because of, as we know, I mean, the practice that I engage in the most is the practice of yoga and the spiritual practice I engage in the most is the practice of yoga. And, um, you know, because of cultural appropriation and because of, of, um, how in the West, at least yoga is really talked about as the physical practice. I feel like that, that, um, creates an environment where more bypassing can happen because all we're doing is shifting the physical body. We're not paying attention to the fact that we're spirit. We're not yeah. devoted to something bigger. We're not living by the principles of yoga, the yamas and the niyamas, you know, I mean, so I think it's how this is packaged. And so the orientation I came to is different because of um, how I was taught to to think about yoga and practice yoga. And also just, I think what, what spirit invited me into, I mean, it's so connected to my work, right? Holding these, these um, multiple truths and the idea that we're bigger than the conditions that are in place, but we have to respond to the conditions in place. Like we actually have work to do around that. And the practices that I go to, to come back to myself, um, the breath, pranayama practices. Um, and I, years ago was in a training, this was like over a decade ago, and Leslie Kamenoff was teaching about anatomy. And I didn't know anything about Leslie Kamenoff. So I went to this training. I didn't know how he would teach about anatomy. And he taught about the breath. Um, and it totally blew my mind like it was like he's not talking about these muscles he's talking about the way that we breathe and one thing he said there is um he was talking about um shifting the way we breathe and when we limit the breath what happens right to the nervous system and what happens in the body and it struck me so much um that you know years later i was in a yoga class and talking about how oppression takes the breath away and so being in this body, at least based on race, in a world that really doesn't want people who look like me to be able to breathe, um, the breath is the thing that will bring me back because it feels like a radical act to make space to breathe in a culture or context that doesn't actually want that to happen mm. and actually actively does things to limit the breath and take away mm. the breath. So that practice, um, prayer, I pray um, every day. And, um, I have a, a gratitude practice as well. And I also have an ancestor altar and I call on my ancestors quite frequently to support me. And I also, as I named earlier in this, uh, relationship with them where I'm listening, um, to what needs to move through me. I'm a channel in that way for them. I feel that way. Uh, and I try to offer things to them because they are showing up and guiding me and supporting me all the time. And reciprocity is, is so important. Um, so there are many practices that, you know, prayer, working with the ancestors, the breath, and, and then movement, I would say, are the main practices for me um, that I go to. That's really beautiful. And I, I love how I've, I've noticed this happening this past weekend. There was, we um, had the closing um, kind of ceremony of our yoga philosophy program and um, all the students were giving their final projects. And whenever anyone talks about the breath or pranayama or gives a presentation, it's interesting how immediately my breath changes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just love that, that, you know, even just remembering it's such a simple device, but it can shift even just to say, to, just to say, remember the breath, um, how quickly it can shift things. And 
when you were talking about the way in which the breath becomes contracted based on um, based on you know socioeconomic and racialized circumstances, that was really power. I find that such a powerful um, kind of insight because it also is incredibly empowering to know that you know to to recognize that this practice itself, pranayama practice itself can be, you know, at least from the internal perspective, a sort of powerful tool against the effects of, of racialized trauma. Mm -hmm. And, and so that was just a really beautiful thing to reflect on. But when you, in your book, and one thing I wanted to talk to you about, well, several things, but particularly this idea of working with ancestors, which I love and, and, um, and feel like it's not really talked a lot about in, Kind of spiritual circles, at least you know maybe modern postural ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what what do you think is particularly um, powerful, especially for you as with working with ancestors? Like, what has that what has that um, kind of gifted or nourished um, about your spiritual practice and and your approach to um, you know dismantling racism in the spiritual community and the community at large? Like, how how does that play into all of this? Yeah. Um, so, you know, looking back, I, I feel like I've always been in relationship with my ancestors. I feel like they've set signs. They have let me know I'm held and cared for and not alone, but I really wasn't conscious of that until my grandmother transitioned in 2017. And, um, my father transitioned as well then, but I was much closer, um, with my, my grandmother and um, I was with her uh, through through this process of her transition, um, as you know from, from reading the book. And immediately, she it's like she transitioned and and was present in a, a more expansive way. Like it, it's almost like I could feel her more liberated state because she wasn't in her body anymore, and um, I could feel her everywhere, like all around me. And she's the ancestor, I always say this, that shows up the most. And um, sometimes I, I feel her around me. I feel her hand on my back. I, I don't actually um, see her, but I feel it's like she's filling up the room. That's kind of how I would describe this relationship with her. And she, she certainly tells me to do certain things. And she tells me when to be urgent. And she pushes me. This hand on my back is often like a go do this, right? This is where you need to be. And I'm with you. Um, and I call on her as well. And so I think through my experience of being with her and then feeling her in this more liberated state and knowing very clearly, like she's here for me, you know, she's here to show up in this way for me. That opened my experience, um, of, of this work with ancestors and, um, you know, I, I agree. It, this is not something that's talked about very much in, in many spiritual spaces, um, which is interesting to me because we are an extension of our ancestors, right? It's like we are, you know, their yeah. legacy <laughs> and their lineage. We're carrying their burden. Right. It's so yeah. fascinating to me. And it's not surprising because I think people have, um, some folks have such a complex relationship with ancestors because of oppression, because of history, that to even um, think about connecting with ancestors who may have been healthy in a bloodline where their their 
potentially was a lot of harm, right, and, and contribution to oppression. I think that's overwhelming for people. And I also think colonization has, you know, stripped many people away from their practices and rituals that would be rooted in a circle with ancestors, right? It's like grounded in that space. Many of us have been separated. And so I think a byproduct of that is a separation from ancestors as well and where we're from. You know, like I have to do 23 and me to figure out where I'm from. I don't have that passed down into my family, right? Um, and I know others may have more access to information, but because my family was split apart and Johnson is, is a namesake that was given to me, right? That's not my last name. I mean, it is, but it's not, it's, it's just different. So I think that people have a complicated relationship with ancestors. And one of my comrades and teachers, Lama Rod Owens, talks about benevolent beings. And he talks about, you know, there had to have been a healthy ancestor in your line, right? So for the people who are like, no one was healthy and I want to disconnect completely because I want to do something different than what they did. Somewhere along the way, there was probably a benevolent being and culture conditioned ancestors to operate in the way that they did. And they were experiencing horrific conditions as well. And so, um, that's that's some about why I think it's just it's challenging for folks and and it's also the ethereal like I can feel my grandmother but for folks who have not had that same experience they may not be able it doesn't feel tangible right it's like who who are you talking to but in spiritual spaces aren't we connected to spirit and don't we see spirit in everything and this is how I think about my grandmother and my ancestors so I think it's like again a reorientation or broadening of how we um think about this notion of being with ancestors and developing a relationship with them. And I mean, my ancestors, like finding refuge came from them. A skill in action came from them through me. So it's nourished my, I mean, it is, it is my work. I feel like I'm doing work for them. And I feel clear, like so very clear about that. And I feel, I'm glad I'm clear about that because it makes me more open to, to what they want to offer and then I'm in this body at this time and I can offer it, right? Um, and I I just feel like they nourish me in so many ways. I'm, I mean, they're why I'm here. They're why I moved through that moment on the floor when I was in pieces after the acquittal of George Zimmerman. Right? They, are, they are like how I got through. I didn't know it at the time. I was terrified. But like they're the reason I'm, I'm here in my wholeness doing the work that I do. Mm. That's beautiful. So in, I just want to mention to the listeners that um, throughout um, Michelle's book, there's a practice section at the end of each chapter, including in um, the, the chapter on ancestors. And is it true, Michelle, that there is um, that the practice kind of goes into um, some detail on, on how to kind of cultivate a relationship with ancestors? Yes, it does, because it mentions if, if one cannot connect with their bloodline, there are living ancestors around us. There's the natural world. There are teachings. There are teachers. There's music. There's poetry, right? There are ancestors that come through in many different forms. And so I try to, I want to offer that because I know like if people are dipping their toe into this for the first time, they may not know where to start. And so having a more expanded understanding of, of what ancestors are, who they are, who they can be, and that we're living ancestors can be helpful. I feel, I find that helpful um, in spaces when I'm working with folks. 
because it's like the entry point. And then maybe they'll work with people, you know, folks in their bloodline. I also really appreciated that you in in the book also kind of mentioned that you could, if you struggle with relating to ancestors in human form, that there there's this option to relate to ancestors in in um, in uh, sort of the elements, as it were, and and nature. And I just love that. I think that's even just to contemplate the elements as ancestors. I think is mm-hmm, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another really kind of key part of the book that I thought was really um, beautiful and tied it, and you tied the discussion of it to um, kind of contemplative teachings and practice so nicely was the the chapter on bees. Uh, and I'd never heard of this notion of bee mysticism, and it was really awesome and cool to me. Um, the uh, And this idea of bees as psychopomps, and bees as kind of mediators between the material and spiritual realms. And, and so I, I'm just, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that and and how sort of bees are this kind of beautiful analogy or metaphor for the the collective hive and and also sort of remind us of the grief associated with the fact that we've lost connection to of the hive in a certain mm-hmm. sense. I'm glad that you asked about the bees um, because they are so very <laughs> magical. And um, I mean, I'm learn I learn things about them every day. So I'm not a an expert on bees or bee mysticism. But I do know they're magical from watching them and being in relationship with them. And what first came to mind when you asked the question is, you know, if if you've seen a beehive and watched the bees come out of it, they they like go way up into the they come out and they go up into the sky and they almost disappear. You have to look so closely to see them flying in the sky because they're up so high. And it makes me think about these different realms, right? They come out from the darkness of the hive and then they ascend. And then they come back to the hive and bring um, materials, resources to make honey um, and to feed the brood and to feed the queen, which I just think is so powerful. Um, And I stand on my deck all the time and watch them and I'm like, where are they? And then there's there's thousands. I mean, I have at least 50,000 bees on my land. So like that amount of bees out in the sky or half that amount in the sky every day. But I can't always see them. Right. Um, So they're. They're definitely um, mystical beings, for sure. And um, if folks have not seen bees in the hive, which many people may have not seen them, um, watching them work, um, they're a super organism. So they, um, and this is in Finding Refuge, right? A single bee doesn't think about itself as a single bee. It's part of the hive. There's no separation between its experience and the hive's experience. So everything they do is for the survival of the hive. And so the hive can be sustainable um, over time, even though their lifespan is so short. And that also feels like um, magical, too. Like, they're, you know, well, winter bees live for longer than, than spring and summer bees and fall bees but they live such a short time and they work so hard um, to sustain the, the hive and they all have different roles and just, you know, they transition from role to role. And, and if you want to learn about collective care and justice, I always say, look at a beehive. Um, And of course they're supporting the queen because she's laying all the eggs in the, 
in the hive and they're feeding her and they're making a new queen when their queen dies or something happens to the queen, they make a new one. It's, it's like the wisdom and the, I mean, I don't even know the half of the wisdom. How do they make a, make it a is new so queen? amazing. If they, if they, if, if their queen is failing, meaning she may not be laying eggs or let's say she dies, um, then they take an egg, some larva that she has laid and they feed it royal jelly. So they, it's called royal jelly and they feed it to that and it turns into a queen cell and they protect that cell. Um, and then the queen has to emerge and she has to go out and fly to the, the meeting place with the drone bees and they, she mates with the drones. It's called her maiden flight. And then she comes back into the hive and starts laying eggs. It is, it is just like that, that kind of wisdom, right? Like we won't survive without a queen. So we're going to take the substance and we're going to make a queen, right? It's just, there's so much there. And I feel like part of the lesson I've learned from them is, or the reminder, I think they've reminded me of um, what you named that, you know, so many of us have been conditioned to think of ourselves as individuals and not as in relationship with every living being. And, um, you know, we've, we've forgotten we are part of a hive. And um, I think this conditioning about being an individual versus being connected to everything uh, can make us competitive. It can make us um, believe in scarcity. It can make us hoard resources. Um, It can make us think about just what's happening to us, like as an individual versus what's happening to us as a collective. And um, so much of what I was thinking about in chapter six about the bees is what are we like, what are we willing to do for the collective, right? When we remember we're actually part of something bigger than just our own individual experience, what can happen? Um, And then what's required, right? Once we realize this. Um, And so I I, um, feel like part of the bees remind us, what they remind us of is to to remember that connection, um, to come back into connection with self and every living being, and this is so related to yoga too, right? They're not being a separation. It's the same thing. It's like bees are doing that all of the time and experiencing that. Yeah, I mean, I I felt like that that chapter was just so enchanting uh, because I could tell how enchanted <laughs> you were by the experience of kind of witnessing the bees. It's and I especially your characterization or depiction of of the swarming. Um, I just saw that. I saw that in the way you described it and it was just so beautiful. Like I, and of course I've, you know, I've seen swarms of bees before, but usually they're, it's like, Oh my God, the bees (laughs) run, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So to hear you like describe it in this just incredibly beautiful way. And, and it is, it's like, besides the, the, the metaphor and analogy for collective, um, uh, collective relationship. Also just like reframing the narrative around what bees are and represent. I think that in and of itself was just a really kind of powerful um, gesture in in the book and I really appreciated it. Yeah. Like we need them, right? We need them to survive and we need to remember that, that like practice of connection, you know? Yeah. 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 So this has been beautiful. I have one more question related to the role of stories because um, 
one thing I'm glad actually you brought up um, Lama Rod was because when I was reading your book, what struck me was some similarity, a similarity in, in the role and centrality of personal stories and, um, and, and integrating those with, with the teachings themselves and using them as kind of illustrations of, of the teachings, but also something stronger happening, which I think um, has to do with really um, speaking the truth of our personal experience and the way those then um, give others the opportunity to feel or to see uh, possibilities or to recognize things in their own experience. So I was just curious in terms of, you know, just the methodology of using so many of your personal stories to kind of um, flesh out some of these ideas around taking refuge, what you find so important about these, this way of, of, of writing a book, of including so many personal stories? I've reflected on this a fair amount because in Skill in Action, I just share a little bit about who I am. And, mm -hmm. and in person or when people are working with me, of course, they learn, they learn more, but I like put it out there in finding refuge. I mean, I feel like I shared yeah. so many personal experiences and details and the way I move and breathe and think, right? All of that comes through. Um, and I was recording the audio version of it and, and it, which was a wild experience because these things happened to me, but then I was like reading about them, but it was about me and it, it struck me. I was like, Oh, you're telling people like everything, you know, about who you are and how you work and, um, what you've been through. And I, um, feel like, as I mentioned earlier, this is, this is the way my ancestors and the people I wrote about in the book wanted me to tell the story. Um, and for each, this is in the epilogue for each story, um, I had to build an altar. I got like specific instructions about what to do. I've, I've never had this experience before, like where I had to, for my grandmother, I had to have her ushering gloves from church and a candle. Right. And for Eric, who I wrote about, I had to go build a fire outside. I was writing inside and he said, go outside and build a fire. And I had to go out there and write. I mean, this is a shamanic experience. That's what what happened. And so I think I wasn't fully conscious of of why I was sharing story in this way when I was doing it, because I was on a journey. I was like on a journey and I was being guided and led. And as I said, listen to that. And um my hope is that people will will um, see themselves in the stories that I've written because almost everyone has lost someone or something. And almost everyone has had some experience of um, grieving a loss. Um, and if people are, are present, even for a moment, as we talked about earlier, there, there's some connection to heartbreak and, and what's going on in the world, right? And what that's calling us into. And so I, I hope my stories inspire people and I hope that they, um, they, they bring people in. It's like calling people in um, so that folks can begin to um, practice, right? Being with, as I named earlier, what is, right? And honoring that or deep to deep in a practice of that and to, there's a, you know, so much vulnerability in finding refuge. Um, and I, my hope is this encourages us to be vulnerable in this way with one another. Like, let's tell the truth about how we're feeling and how our hearts are like, this is, this is what I want. And so I think that's, that's why. And I 
I always, my intention was to scale it to the collective. Like what I am experiencing, the collective is experiencing in some way. And I knew that. And so I wanted to tell the story uh, or was guided to tell the story and then say, this is how it's showing up in our world and our collective. Do you see it too? Right. You know, can you focus on this journaling prompt about it? Um, can you think about the heart and the hive and your intuition? This is, this is what I want to invite people, people into. So I'm, I'm hoping, and there's an arc, the chapter you were talking about with the bees is, and my grandmother's even is kind of like the, okay, now we're, we've gotten in touch with our grief some, and there's more, but, but what's, what do we need to do, right? What do we do with this? How do we move with this instead of letting grief get stuck in our toes and stagnate us, right? Um, how do we move through? So I, I hope that comes through too. Like, let's be with what is and let's move with it too. Yeah, and I think that definitely comes through in the practice, in the practice portions, and um, and I hope people will engage those because they definitely, you know, it can be easy to skip over those sections sometimes when you're reading books these days. But that's really where kind of the magic happens. Um, but you know, I, I appreciate you mentioning vulnerability just because I think it's such a powerful teaching, and and it's so scary for so many people to be vulnerable and to feel safe feeling vulnerable. And it's not always treated, you know, when people come out as vulnerable, it's not always received in the most compassionate way. And, and so that kind of then feeds into the, this kind of fear of, of opening up. And so, you know, I thought it was really beautiful and courageous and definitely an act of vulnerability to read these stories. And it, you know, for me, you know, you were saying you hope people, recognize themselves in the experience. And I, I definitely see it, um, you know, creating space for the possibility of that, but also the possibility for others who don't share that experience, but mm -hmm. are, are put in a place of compassionate response based on some of the stories. Like for example, I, I've never experienced what it's like to um, you know, be driving a car while black. Mm -hmm. Um, and that story that you shared, it stuck, it struck such a compassionate chord in me. And I think for everyone, ev all the readers, it will. And, and so that kind of, you know, also communicating, um, and, and inspiring compassion across differences is so fundamentally important in, in these kinds of, um, in these, in these, in these books and in this, in this mm -hmm. moment that, I just kind of, you know, I wanted to kind of applaud you and, and point out like how wonderful I think that aspect is to the book. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad that came through and that you mentioned it because that certainly is the other intention, right? And and that compassion and deepening that. And um, but, I mean, we, we need that <laughs> right now. Um, we've needed it and we need it more than ever now because of so much the, the division, right? And it's the coming back into wholeness yes, together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the division is is really profound, and and um, it was something that I was going to kind of bring up because when we were talking about COVID, because it seems like COVID sort of brought it all to the surface, or at least it created this kind of frame. You know, George mm -hmm. Floyd happened, and you know the the second wave of um, Black Lives Matter, and just all of this happening kind of in this intensified, um, just you know boiling pot of, of COVID-19. Um, it was in, in that sense, it's almost like 
was COVID, you know, can we see it from a certain perspective as an opportunity, right, to to really reflect on these things and to and to to do work and to recognize the need for work like we haven't been able to before. And maybe we wouldn't necessarily see the need as strongly had COVID-19 not mm-hmm, happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, it's an, I mentioned the opportunity earlier, like for us to um, focus on, on what has happened, as you just named. And I don't know that it, we would be where we are if the, those different things didn't happen at the time, right? COVID and as you mentioned, George Floyd and the second wave that all of these things came together in this storm. And yeah. um, as I mentioned, I mean, they reconfigured who we are and gave us an opportunity to figure out who we want to be. So, yeah. 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 So Michelle, um, as we close, I'm wondering if you'd like to share a little bit about what's coming up for you. Um, obviously this book mm-hmm. is going to be published very soon. What's the, what's the publishing date on it? That's also a very auspicious day because it aligns with the beginning of our spiritual citizenship online conference, which is, which is actually very aligned with um, the work oh, that you're wow. doing. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's lovely. We'll have to, th- we'll have to um, include a uh, mention of that in our, on our conference page. I would that would be that. great. Yeah. Um, so the book is, is being birthed then, and I have several things lined up for um, the book release. So I have some, an IG Instagram meditation I'll lead on the 11th and a ritual from the book. I'm going to lead on the 12th on Instagram. And then the book release party will happen on July 13th at 6 PM and people can on zoom. So people can go to my website and um, just sign up for that. So you can get the link and um, I'll be talking and my friend Mirabelle will lead an invocation and Octavia Rahim is going to be there and share some, and it's going to be, um, exciting. I'm excited to, I wish I could be in person and I'm excited to celebrate with people all over the world um, to celebrate the birthing of, of finding refuge. And then I have workshops lined up for finding refuge and presentations and skill in action um, workshops throughout the next year. And so the best way people can find me on my website, which is michellecjohnson.com. And you can stay up to date uh, with all the offerings that I have coming up. So that's a little bit about what's to come. And, and I'm going to be doing an IG live with Tracy Stanley and Carrie Kelly about finding refuge too. So just stay tuned. Oh, excellent. Love Tracy. I recently interviewed her when the radiant, her uh, radiant book came out, radiant rest. That's it. All right. Well, it's been such a pleasure, Michelle. I've been speaking today with Michelle C. Johnson, who is about to publish her her next book, Finding Refuge, Heartwork for Healing Collective Grief. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And it's been great to be in conversation with you.